Hey, welcome to Bookworm Games. This is Wesley Schantz, and I'm joined this time by Moses, the well-read mage Norton, um, from the blog of the same name. How are you doing, Moses? I'm doing very great. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation. This is an exciting conversation that I think we're going to have tonight. I Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking to you in person, so to speak, um, <laughs> for a long time. Because, you know, I came across your website, I don't know, a year or two ago now when I was working on a, a series of essays and um, thinking about Earthbound a lot. And, and I made it into a podcast. And I was like, okay, so now what do I do with all this stuff? So mm -hmm. I was looking around, and that's how I came across the wellreadmage.com. Um, at the time, it was a, a WordPress, I guess, and now it's its own sort of thing, um, still powered by WordPress. But um, yeah, I was just so delighted to run across your work and what you're up to there. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you got started with that and um, some of the stages along your way with, um, with the blog and, and your uh, reporting and thinking on games. Sure, it'd be my pleasure. Um, so the Well-Read Mage is the third blog uh, that I've made. The first one was a theology um, blog that I put together based on notes from a, a uh, college-age systematic theology group that I was teaching for about two years. Um, and then after that, um, I made a, an extremely short-lived uh, comic book review blog <laughs> called Briffitts and Quimps. Um, Briffitts, I think, are like those little dash lines in, in comic art or cartoonist art. And then oh. Quimps, I think, are the, if I remember right, like the Saturn celestial shapes when somebody uh, cusses in a, in a comic. So <laughs> um, or gets hurt or something like that. So that, that didn't last long. I quickly realized I couldn't afford to buy enough comic books comic books to warrant reviewing them um so after that uh i had a couple of friends who we were all kind of talking about blogging um one of these friends kind of was dabbling in a movie review blog and i was like why don't we just uh make a blog together so me and uh two friends who ended up being the black humor mage and the timely mage decided to start this blog and we were just going to write, write game reviews and game thoughts. And um, eventually other real life friends that I knew locally want, and wanted to join. And um, I kind of did a little bit of evangelizing to them to see if they would want to write for the, <laughs> the site. Yeah. And then uh, I think it was somewhat out of the blue Somebody I'd never met online asked if they could write an article for the site too. Yeah. Um, and now we have over 60 registered writers. Um, now, not all of them are active, but they're all around the globe and they come and go and they write when they please and there's no quota. Um, yeah. But well, it's been cool to be able to kind of uh, express all these different opinions and, and publish different opinions, even though those that I disagree with. Because I think that's important um, for game review sites uh, to not create like ideologically slanted or even just um, material that's all slanted in the same critical direction. So, no, yeah, I, I really appreciate the breadth of of things that are possible there. Um, it's not just reviews too, which is great because I don't really write you know straightforward reviews. I write mm -hmm. my my take on games and. Um, 
the kinds of things I'm interested in are a little weird, I think. And um, it's, it's cool that there's a place for that uh, also. <laughs> so, yeah. so thank you very much for, for hosting and um, being sort of the uh, master of ceremonies. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's really been awesome to, um, you know, I've never met you in real life. Uh, this is the closest that we've ever met before, just talking over the internet. Um, but it's great that there are people who come that will latch on to the ideas of, um, you know, criticism can actually happen yeah. or uh, it's important to share um, a variety of different views and have that kind of diversity um, and to create new kinds of game writing. Um, so we do primarily reviews like you pointed out, but we also do feature a lot of different other kinds of content. We're growing kind of a family of podcasts. Uh, we've got this podcast network that we're leading. Um, and we do, you know, the columns that, that you've done as well. Uh, opinion pieces, editorials, all these different kinds of things. So, uh, it's been fun though. Yeah. Collaborating in that way is I mean, it's really important, I think, um, to not, not for me at least, to not just feel like I'm sort of talking to myself all the time, <laughs> to feel yeah. like there is somebody on the other end um, who can give me some feedback and um, set me straight if I go off, you know, on some weird tangent sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so, yeah, and I think that's another really impo important part of um, those other things that you're kind of interested in. Like, like you said, this was, I guess, the third, um, and uh, most recent uh, foray into doing this sort of thing online. Um, I'm curious how you kind of learned from or, you know, developed it out of those other projects on, on theology and then on comic books. Like what's the, uh, what's the through line there? Mm, uh, kind of a, that's kind of a question that I've tried to sort out over the years. I think that the ideas that are, core to the well-read mage stem from some of my core beliefs about the current um, habitat, if you like, of theological discussion. So I think what we've seen historically is a lot of closed-mindedness, a lot of sectarianism, and a lot of uh, ad hominem <laughs> in, in discussions about theology. So one of my purposes in writing about those things and in teaching those things was not just an attempt to make them more accessible. And when we talk about things like God's aseity, uh, like what the heck is that? But so to introduce these ideas to uh, an intelligent group of people, the college age, and not just to make them accessible, but to make them something that can be discussed in an environment where um, attacks are not tolerated, where um, free discussion can happen. I think that that's important in the realm of theology, but I think that that's important generally as well. Um, perhaps you could say even historically, gaming discussion has had a lot of similarities with theological discussion, and that there is, again, sectarianism, there are groups, there are fandoms uh, that can get pretty extreme sometimes. So uh, sometimes I willfully think I'm not the right personality for that ideal uh, because I like to argue. <laughs> but uh, I think that trying to promote 
the kinds of principles that make ideas more accessible and that make discussion um, more capable is something that I really believe in, whether I'm the right person equipped to make that happen or not. Hey, I mean, it's going so far so good as far as I can tell. And that's the third new word you've taught me tonight. I got to say, um, what were they about the, the comic books, the uh, brifflets? Oh, briflets and, and quimps. Yeah. And now aseity. Aseity is the <laughs> self-existence of God. I had, to, I had to Google it. I don't know that word, but I do now. Yeah. I yeah. feel like you're, you're doing something right. <laughs> well, cool. I, you're one of the smartest people I know based on your writing. So that's, that's awesome. But it, it demonstrates that we have so much to te- teach each other. Yes. Um, yes you yes. have a lot to teach me. Um, I have a lot to learn from other people. And that cannot happen unless we're having conversation. Yeah. Uh, well, I feel like there's a lot in that because, you know, the thing that lets us discuss, as you point out, right, the internet is this wonderful thing. We can find out things immediately that we didn't know before and we can meet new people who are far away and have you know, similar interests, but uh, different backgrounds or you know, different knowledge sets, skill sets, whatever. But by the same token, it's this you know, horrible machine that um, is this kind of echo chamber uh, mm-hmm. effect. And um, yeah, and any small argument can quickly you know, blow up out of all proportion to whatever it was actually about in the first place. And so I, how do you, how do you get to have such a good, you know, healthy community? Um, is it, <laughs> I feel like you, you have some, some um, wisdom on this that you are being too humble about right now. What, what, how did you get this thing to, to work? <laughs> I, I, I really don't have any uh, particular <laughs> wisdom on that. I, I don't hand select people. Um, there's very few people that I've reached out to personally and asked if they would like to write for the site. Um, my, belief on that is that um, communities will attract the kind of people who really belong there um, automatically. And so I think that the people who have come to the Well-Read Mage, and not necessarily just written for it, but supported it in a variety of different ways, whether that's financially or through conversation or through content, um, or for just being there and asking questions and interacting, Um, that those are the kind of people that believe kind of a lot of the same core ideas. And so, um, I don't know, maybe, I think it's more like a a beacon than it is like I have some kind of mastermind blueprint that (laughs) (laughs) that does things that, you know, I I don't, I don't understand how it works. It's, um, we're going to be, I think it's four years old in February. Um, And if you told me four years ago that um, this this site was going to be like this, I probably wouldn't have believed you. I uh, typically am afraid of talking uh, for prolonged periods of time, but here in the past 10 years, I've had the opportunity to teach people uh, in, in groups settings, and then I've had the opportunity to write and to start podcasts. So I don't know. It just happens. Stuff just happens. I don't know. How, I don't know. I like that. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a it's a wonderful place. And so if people out there haven't you know, really um, spent much time there, please you know, you're you're, you're more than welcome to. Um, and so as somebody you know starting a, a podcast or a blog or whatever it is, this this is a great place to come in and um, soak in by osmosis or whatever mysterious means it is. You know, whatever 
um, you can uh, learn from this. Um, I wanted to dig in a little more into the theology component of your, um, what you were teaching a systematic theology course at, at a certain time. How, how did you get interested in that as a, as a topic? And um, what, what sorts of things were you trying to, um, to work out systematically or, or, or whatever, whatever that name, that term means? I'm not entirely sure. Sure. So uh, systematic theology is basically just uh, an approach to examining um, what's historically considered like orthodox doctrine. And this, obviously this, this could apply to a variety of different worldviews and, and religions. But um, for Judeo-Christian systematic theology, it's a question of uh, what are sort of the basic um, beliefs? Um, how do they arrive at those beliefs from the source material um, and so on? So it's systematic in that it approaches these subjects in an orderly fashion. Um, one of the things that I think is prevalent in religion today is an overemphasis on uh, the passions, on emotions. Uh -huh. Those things have a place most certainly. Um, but I think that a lot of knowledge has been lost in the pub in the public sphere of um, theological discussion and theological um, writings and knowledge that that have happened in the past. So, um, around the time I was interested in reading Aquinas and Augustine um, and a, a a few other bizarre names, <laughs> but. Uh, it, it was something that I think was good for that period of time in my life and the lives of some of the students that I had. Um, it's not something that I finished. I, I never entirely finished um, teaching systematic theology. I think we left off in like pneumatology or, or Christology or something like that. But we went essentially through um, the attributes of God. I learned about a few um, attributes of God that I hadn't heard before. Um, like what was one? Oh, like God's impassibility. Whoa. Um, yeah. Which, uh, doesn't mean that he can't be passed through. <laughs> it actually means that he has no passion. Ah. Um, and the, the term means that he can't suffer. Um, and that raises all kinds of questions, right? Cause then you have, what about the incarnation of Christ? Yeah. Um, what about God experiencing grief from human sin? What about, you know, God taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked and all these things. Um, so that's a really fascinating idea to explore. I think that was Aquinas that, that coined that phrase, but um, it, it's interesting. It, to me, it felt like um, trying to explore this, this concept of, you know, is what, what would the prime mover be? What would the unmoved yeah. mover be? Um, I talk to a lot of agnostics who I empathize with greatly. Uh, when I was younger, I identified as an atheist. Okay. And uh, I think that, um, I think that the, the, it's, a, it's a valid question to say, um, you know, let's, like, let's just say that there probably is something out there, but how do you know anything about it? How could you possibly okay. know anything about it? Um, if it's so far removed from our experiences and what our life is like. And so I think part of 
part of that exploration of this concept is this idea of trying to go systematically through different uh, reasonings and different argumentations and different writings and ideas and concepts and theories and models. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I'll ask people like, what is, what is your model of God if you believe in God? Uh, and they'll, they'll have various different ideas. And so it's just, to me, it's, a, it's an interesting and it's a fascinating uh, subject. Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I always was fascinated by theology. Um, and I have dabbled in uh, Aquinas and uh, Augustine. Um, the Confessions, I think, mm. is one of the you know, foundational works of literature and uh, of theology for that you know yeah absolutely and i think that uh one thing that i try to encourage people i mean i you know i don't just talk to christians and i think sure. that that's that's an important thing that's part of that echo chamber yeah. but um i i think that at the same time people are turned off by um relentless proselytize proselyte i can't even get the word out <laughs> relentless proselytization (laughs) but uh so in having a discussion with people um i'll talk about things like literary value um that's kind of a hard thing to quantify but when you talk about books like confessions um these are books that have helped shape civilization um you talk about books like the bible like there are still ideas that were that that are that are core and central that have come out of the new testament um, one thing that I've been listening to recently, and it's something that I want to explore more. I, I have, I've never studied it. I don't know, but I believe it was, um, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright who suggested that, uh, the first appearance of individual civil rights is in the New Testament in the ancient world. Um, as far as equality for, for individuals, um, that's a pretty humongous claim. But it's something that I'd like to uh, kind of explore more. So questions like that, discussions like that, that are happening now. I, I think that these things aren't, uh, they haven't all been figured out entirely. N.T. Wright is a, a beast of a writer. I, I've yeah. read a little bit of his um, many, many words. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he has an interesting point that he brings up from time to time that I, I'd like to get your take on. He says something about how how very important it is to um, to have a love for the subject in order to understand it, and and he's you know talking in terms of faith. I think primarily, right, that you wouldn't understand faith from the outside, right, um, in the way that you would need to to get that full um, I don't know comprehension, which would be possible. Um, and, and so I think there's something interesting there um, because yeah. You can, you can study and you can go through a lot of things um, logically or rationally or in, in, a, in an orderly way, but that there's some quality of experience that can't be gotten um, from an objective standpoint, but you have to sort of undergo it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that is, I don't know if that's a fair representation of his point, but that's always how I've understood what he's saying um, about having a kind of um, uh, hermeneutics of, of love or something like that. So what do you think of that? Does that, does that jive with your take on, on being objective about things and, and 
standing back from them so to so as to understand them better uh i think that that's probably a pretty sound principle for almost any yeah. field of study um you imagine it'd probably be pretty hard to understand something from saying like an empathetic perspective um if you're utterly disdainful of it uh, <laughs> but i think like in something like writing yeah. writing is a craft that i'm very much interested in uh but imagine if i hated it <laughs> i probably wouldn't do much of it uh and therefore i probably wouldn't get much you know practice of it and wouldn't improve at the craft uh so I think that that, yeah, that probably does apply to a lot of regions, um, a lot of fields of study. Um, the second part of what you were saying there, uh, as, as far as like an experiential mm -hmm. um, understanding of something, um, and thinking about my own life, uh, I had several uh, experiences in which I near quite nearly died um, that were part of my coming to appreciate the brevity of life um i think when we're young we think we're immortal uh and i certainly did when i was young but um i almost drowned uh i had a kidney removed that was 50 pounds Ooh. um yeah so i <laughs> i've had some uh some health issues through my life um that in retrospect i think were important for the development of my understanding of uh, of life, from my perspective of life, but I don't think that you that somebody could have the same impact um, that those experience experiences gave me just looking at them from the outside. So I don't know if that approaches answering your question. No, absolutely. Yeah. So here's a concrete example. I mean, that's that's really intense um but just to go to video games to lighten things up a little here yeah <laughs> here's this game, game xenogears that i've been talking about on my you know in my work for a little while now um where I, i'm trying to sort of delve into some of its literary sources and its themes and they they're they're all to do with um you know killing god and uh riding giant robots around and and being really uh just really like full of life and and gusto and um it's a wonderful wonderful game um but it's a it's also got uh you know the these kinds of ideas that come to it through as far as i can tell through um a, a certain kind of reading of religious texts and psychological uh, i don't know studies and um mashing that together with a lot of you know anime and I suppose a certain amount of just sort of general Japanese culture um, and, and so stuff that I'm a lot less familiar with. Um, but um, so I, I tend to focus on, on things that I, I know about a little more. Um, and, and so, you know, when I, when I approach that game, I can see that there's, you know, a lot of objective flaws with, with all sorts of elements of it. You know, it's, it's, a bizarre mashup of a lot of weird stuff to begin with mm -hmm. and um and yet i really love the game you know and i and so that that makes me want to spend time talking about and thinking about it um and i noticed that for you it seems like your favorite game 
is also the game that you consider objectively the greatest game. <laughs> uh, I can't help but notice you, you, you like to talk about it in those terms. Um, and it's Chrono Trigger, of course, right, for the SNES. Uh-huh. That is your favorite game, right? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it's a great game. I think it is objectively got to be up there as far as the best games ever made. Um, certainly one of the best RPGs ever made, if not the best. And, and yet I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's my favorite game. I would mm-hmm. say I like you know, several, especially Earthbound. I, mm-hmm. Earthbound is even more so than Xenogears. I, I am endlessly in awe of the, the, the enjoyment that, that Earthbound brings and, mm-hmm. and the delight. Uh, and I don't, know, I don't know quite what to do with that because I can see that, again, it's, it's got some quirks to it. Like, it's not a perfect game the way Chrono Trigger is. So, so what is it about you, I guess, that, that makes you sort of those two things work together the the objective quality and the the subjective favorite you know element um they they, they go hand in hand with you Eho, tremendous question <laughs> so it's a favorite subject of mine that people know uh sometimes i parody myself in creating objectivity exists memes and things like that um, <laughs> but i'm a firm believer that uh objectivity in art and subjectivity in art both exist objectivity as qualities in the object subjectivity as observations from the subject um but i think so much more needs to continue to be said about that uh, in the relatively young um area of video games now a couple sort of uh clarifications that i want to make um is that I think you can have multiple best games ever, actually. Good. good. Um, because those things can exist in separate contexts. So it depends on the context that you're willing to explore. If you're, if you're going to say the best game of all time for all video games, like, do you mean the context of all video games yet to come? Because that seems pretty Ooh. audacious. Yeah. <laughs> or do you mean... Like one one of the things that I attempted to explore in this article that I wrote about Chrono Trigger that was compared to like a doctorate uh, is um, this idea that Chrono Trigger. One of the things that makes Chrono Trigger great is its its handling of its own hardware limitations. So things like um, there being no uh, break between battles and exploring the map. Um, and how the designers chose to handle that um, in interesting ways. So things like that that I think are definitely approachable um, and understandable, but I don't think that we're anywhere near critically capable at this point in time of really understanding completely, 100% objectively, you know, what's the best video game in this or that. Another clarification that I want to make too is that I think that a person's favorite and a game that they think is the best is uh, frequently not um, not the same thing. Um, and it doesn't have to be the same thing. So um, I have played some video games that I think are incredible in terms of their objective design, their presentation, the craft of the performances, the utility of the visuals, and all of these things, the expertness of the composition of the music, and so on and so forth. Um, 
that are objectively, I think, really well put together, but they're nowhere near my favorite game. And that's for a variety of personal reasons. Yeah, so I, I think that being able to though, express what your reasons are for liking a game personally and being able to express what you think are um, really the, the good extant qualities in, a, in an object are two different things, but they might have some overlap. And I think that exploring that boundary between what is objective and what is subjective is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think the more that we talk about it, the better. Yeah, yeah. So that you can sort of have the, the, the richness of the perspectives um, that cut across and overlap and yet aren't wholly aligned um, so that you get, you get both of those integrating in some way to, to make a, a, a larger whole um, mm. of your appreciation of the game or, or whatever the, the work of art it might be. Um, so yeah, for me, if I was going to sort of say what I think the best game of all time is, I would say it's Super Mario 3. Um, and <laughs> Which I gave a perfect score to when I reviewed it. I, I think that, yeah, objectively, it's, it's quite good. It, and, and the reason I would say is that that feels more like a video game somehow. There's, there's, a, there's an element of RPGs which is more like a story, you know, mm-hmm. and that in Super Nintendo games, it's, it's kind of limited because they, they didn't have a, the room to unfold the story in the way that you do once you get on CDs and, mm-hmm. and discs and um, the cloud and whatnot, right? You can yeah. just go forever. But, um, but there was always more of, a, of an emphasis on um, narrative storytelling uh, that, you know, through text, that, that's what I want to say. Whereas in Mario, you know, you're just doing stuff uh, and, it, and there's this incredible verve to your, your jumping and running and flying and, and oh gosh, it's just, it's just the perfect game to me. Um, and, and I think, I think about Zelda in that way too, right? Some of the, the Zelda games, I, I couldn't pick the best one or, or even maybe my favorite one, maybe Majora's Mask, I, I don't know, but uh, maybe Link to the Past. Um, I, I think those are also perfect games. You know, I, I couldn't say anything that could be done to make those games better. And, and I think that there's something about the youth of a medium actually, or a genre, where the, the perfect definition of it comes out early on in its existence, because you see this in, um, in languages too, where you know, in, in uh, Homer's epics, they are like the definition of, of Greek literature in a lot of ways, and they, they're the first. And mm-hmm. um, the same goes for uh, uh, you know, someone like Shakespeare who kind of codifies the English language and, and coins lots of words and, and sort of defines for us what we think of as you know great English literature and, and Dante in, in Italian and I think that that might be I'm sure that somebody has you know said this better but um but that might be a, a thing about a medium that like in its infancy it has its most perfect developments and that it only is gonna degenerate in sorts different sorts of ways until it gives rise to something new mm-hmm. um that's, and that's when it gives rise to no, I think that's that's fantastic. When it gives rise to something new, I think is when that context shifts. Yeah. So, for instance, um, you know, you bring up Homer and Shakespeare and those things. Those aren't really like the standards necessarily by which we judge storytelling today, 
because they're so far removed linguistically, culturally, historically, and, and so on and so forth. There are things, I think there are artifacts of those works of art, those masterpieces that are analogous to what we would explore today in terms of storytelling. Um, but I think as time goes on, you know, new art forms are created and uh, new sub art forms are created. Um, so this was a discussion I was having with someone recently about the question of like, should we, should we have stuck to um, sort of the rules of Renaissance art um, and just kind of kept those ideas and perpetuated those ideas? Well, then we never would have got Impressionism, right? Oh, yeah. But so you could see that, you know, new genres need to be created, new subgenres need to be created, and they, they contain their own rules then. We're able to, because of objectivity in art, we're able to pick out what is the difference between a Monet and a Rembrandt because we can see what descriptions and what rules and um, what the playground has changed to. So yeah. in 20, 30 years, who knows what video games will look like? Um, who knows what new best video games will get? But I think that those best will exist in a specific context. So yeah. all that no, to yeah. say, I agree with you though. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that image. The, the art um, example is a good one because yeah, when I say degeneration, I don't mean that to be pejorative necessarily because the, the thing is sort of coming apart the way that an impressionist painting um, breaks the light into little patches. Right. But, mm -hmm. but that somehow in so doing you, you, you do sort of learn a new way of seeing that you wouldn't have learned otherwise and, and that that's valuable. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that, that the work sort of teaches you how to look at it and in turn teaches you how to see things in a new light. And I, I think that that's, yeah, when I look at Xenogear, so just to, I really do want to come around to this eventually. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a mess of a game in a lot of ways. Um, you, you never played it, have you? I, I haven't. And thanks for bringing that. I was going to mention that on, on your show that I've not played it. Okay. I'm very excited to play it someday, but yeah, I've not played it any longer than about 15 minutes. Okay. Yeah. So I won't, I normally I'd spoil all sorts of things about the story. So I will not, I will not do that. And, and so don't <laughs> listen to other episodes in the series. If okay. you don't want the stories. Spoiled. I appreciate that. You know, it's fair. I mean, the game's what, 25 years old. Something Gosh, like that. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, and and so it's it's got a lot of brilliant ideas. It's got wonderful characters and relationships, and and you know they're after the deepest meanings you could imagine, right? For a story to to go after, but um, as a game, it's uh, it's it's flawed in lots of ways, you know. And and I I think as a story too, it it has its its problems, its issues. Um, but but part of that um, is that it is reaching for something that's so uh, extravagant that um, that it really does break new ground and um, in just the sort of way that like you know a, a, a new artistic style emerges and 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 it's hard to understand at first um, you know it's uh, so there I, I don't want to go into specifics but <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a kind of um, it's the kind of thing that I I really admire in games um, that in their flaws, you know, that they're they're trying something new and they're um, they're creating uh, something which otherwise would never have um, uh, made it into the world. Um, and it's not, you know, it's it's odd because they 
they're coming out of um, Square, right? It's it's a SquareSoft game. It's got mm -hmm. some of the same people who worked on Chrono Trigger, right? And you would think like they'd take that experience and and work it up into something even greater and and more, you know, amazing. And and in some ways they do, and in some ways they they can't, you know, they can't quite recapture that. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of limitations um, external to the game. Uh, if you read about it, you know, they, they kind of ran out of time and money and mm -hmm. the development just was like a, a nightmare in a lot of ways for, for the people to, um, that were working on it. But, um, but they, you know, at the same time, they, they, they pushed their talents, right. To, to confront those things. And, and I guess you see that too, with, um, with Chrono Trigger, right. With um, the composer um, Mitsuda who mm -hmm. works on both games. And you talk about this in your, in your piece, I think he, he has like a breakdown, right? Because um, yeah, he can't do it. He can't. He can't yeah. complete it. He was overworking himself. Um, certainly, I you know I've never been Japanese. I've never been to Japan, <laughs> but it sounds like that's um, a cultural um, trait uh, right. to be an extremely hard worker. Um, and certainly, like most things in life, right, can be. Uh, a vice or a virtue, um, depending on moderation. So it sounds like he, you know, he he was in his office for several days. He's sleeping in his office. He's just working constantly. Eventually, developed ulcers. Um, had to be hospitalized, uh, which is quite traumatic. Um, to what degree that affected the final quality of the music of Chrono Trigger? I don't think we know for sure. We'd probably have to examine, you know, what he was working on previously uh, as far as sort of maybe prototypical music for the game. But um, Uematsu then famously came in and finished a couple tracks for the, for the game. But it is one of those soundtracks that I think, given the, the project's limitations of the Super Nintendo and the scale that, of a soundtrack that you could afford on a cartridge, uh, it's incredible what was accomplished. Yeah, no, it's it's a similar thing. I I get the sense at least um, on Xenogears, there's not enough tracks really to to have a different, you know, feel to some of the the scenes that really should have had their own um, at least some kind of variation on, on the music. But it's still, I think, one of the great you know video game soundtracks. And and the the um, there was a recent like 20 year anniversary concert that you can, if you're lucky, you can find on YouTube somewhere. Um, they, they seem to be taking it down too, cause they're, they're trying to sell copies of this thing. Um, uh -huh. still it's, but it's just amazing. And, and he's, he's returned to these, these songs a few times. He did a, he did a, a compilation with, um, with a, a band called millennial fair. Right, so there's your Chrono okay. Trigger connection, and um, it's it's a it's a CD called uh, Creed. It's spelled C R E I D. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but um, but it's just beautiful music um, by by any I think by any objective standard, right? And mm -hmm. and it's it's that much more, you know, because I, I whenever I hear those songs, right, I, I I go back to the events and and the things that that, that go with them for me. Um, I think that that music has that kind of haunting quality that and this is something so maybe just now in in our culture we're sort of grappling with the ways that the the artistry and the 
total dedication that it takes to make great art, um, the toll that those can take on somebody and the ways that those can be connected with, you know, physical or psychologically damaging habits and, um, uh, you know, potentially um, addictions even. I, I think, you know, for a long time we've known like artists are a little off. Uh, they, they, they do their own thing and they do some dangerous things sometimes too. But, but just now I think maybe we're, we're sort of starting to wonder if, is, is that worth it anymore? And, and that's kind of a new thing, I think. Yeah. Um, what is the, the age old phrase art is suffering, right? Yeah. Um, I think there's something almost that sounds pretentious to our 21st century ears when we hear a phrase like that. Um, <laughs> but certainly art has taken its toll on its artists um, throughout history. Um, and there's been various artists that have even died for their art. Depends on your definition of art too, which is a whole other subject that I try to grapple with people on. Um, I'm very, as a side note, I'm very against the idea that everything is art. Um, Cause I think once you sap the, once you sap all of the meaning of out of the word art, it becomes meaningless. It becomes a nonsense term. It becomes useless. Yes. Um, now that being said, I think there's a whole bunch of things that are art uh, that are crafts that are ways of appreciating various skills. Um, but I think at base you need an artist and you need intentional expression. Uh, but anyway, yeah. um, all that to say, I think that what we see a lot, especially, um, well, it seems previously, especially with Japanese, uh, game developers was a lot of suffering. Um, what we see today, a lot of too, is a lot of suffering for, um, the creation of video games as art. Uh, whether they think of it as an art form or not in development is something that I'd be very interested to know. Um, I think that there are certain games that seem as if they're produced more as consumer products than as um, art forms. But I think that uh, there are certain things which are just going to be art regardless uh, because they include certain things like writing, um, music, visuals you've got very few video games that aren't going to use those things at all well maybe even that's impossible video games how do you have a video game without video so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I no, know. yeah in, in many ways the game incorporates and uh, tries to strike some kind of balance between a lot of other uh, older forms of, of art right and so how could the the amalgamation of all of those things not be um, its own uh, complex and wonderful uh, thing to critique and analyze endlessly. <laughs> right. And that's a good point. Right. Um, and I've had that discussion with some other folks as well. You know, uh, some folks will say, and it's an interesting argument, right? So some folks will say video games are not an art form. Um, and they'll typically come at it as, you know, the whole, um, because there there's art is everything and nothing mm. or, um, because it's just too it's too soon to decide and because the term art carries a lot of uh, connotations with it that don't fit or don't do service to the fact that video games are so unique um, but then I'll ask those folks okay do you think that like novels are a work of art yes 
Do you think that paintings are a work of art? Yes. Do you think that movies are a work of art? Yes. Uh, do you think that music is a work is an art form rather? Um, yes. Okay. Well, video games include still images, painting, uh, a lot of uh, cinematic tendencies, especially today. Um, they include a lot of music and they include a lot of writing. I mean, right now I'm playing Final Fantasy 14. There's a lot of dialogue in that game. Uh, and it either has to be poorly written or crudely written. So uh, I think that, I think that again, we're still kind of looking at what is, what are video games exactly? How are they in art form? Um, and what do we say about them that's unique? Uh, maybe the most interesting argument I saw for games not being art um, was from, and I mentioned this on a previous episode of my show, so I'm not going to go on for it too long, but somebody I was able to interview said that um, video games are not art um, because they're so unique. And that, that element of uniqueness, I think, still needs to be explored. No, yeah, I, I, I see the value of, of a lot of those kinds of, distinctions right and you know i don't know if it's fair to call a game a work of art in the way that some of the components of that game could be right if you took a photo of somebody you know making a, a beautiful play in uh, i don't know in tennis or, or whatever right that photograph might be easier to identify as art than than the game itself which has elements of competition and you know, physical prowess and, and all that right. sort of stuff that's, that's really hard to just kind of um, objectively look at aesthetically or, or whatever. So, yeah, but, but at the same time, I, I mean, I think that there is a, an important, it goes, to, it goes to a really deep question, right? That, that what is question and, and, and distinguishing elements um, of, of difference within um, sort of realms uh, of overlap. Um, there, there's a, there's a, a lot that rides on, you know, the, the language and the, the categories of thought that you're applying. And, and I don't know that, you know, festering, uh, difficulties like that will, will necessarily get us closer to, you know, appreciating and understanding the thing, um, when you get down to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I do, I do really like yeah, thinking about these kind of things. Um, here's here's one way I like to think about them. Um, when when the developer seems self-aware and you know to an extent pretentious maybe about their own artistry, um, I think that you see that more, or at least the way that I play games. Maybe I just play more RPGs, so I see it more in RPGs where like you know the the language is reaching for something. Um, you know, very majestic or, 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 you know, impactful or whatever. And the kinds of themes of romance and adventure and, and, and stuff are all very grand. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times they do a nice job of also injecting enough like humor and, and comic relief to, to, you know, make fun of themselves a little bit at least. Um, but, uh, but I do, I do feel like, you know, the people making these games, though they do want to, you know, make money and they have to, you know, sell a lot of copies. They they do or did. I guess I don't play a lot of current games, but they did at least. You know, in the in the golden age, right of Square, they they really thought of it as art. You, you see that in um, in a Final Fantasy seven, right or six even, or 
or Xenogears, right? They, they're really cinematic and, um, and awesome and oh, they're lush. You know, every, every quality that you could, you could put into, into great art is, is totally present there. Yeah, I think a mark of, of great art is, um, especially the storytelling arts, is great characters. Characters that seem to live, uh, that seem to not just inhabit their world, but haunt us in ours, uh, that are unforgettable. And certainly there are a lot of those kinds of characters in, in games. Um, but I think another difficulty, too, in talking about art, even, is... Uh, We've little agreement on descriptors and definitions of terms. Um, you know, if we're talking with people that don't even think art actually exists, uh, that's one thing. But um, I tend to use terms like work of art and then art form um, that would be really similar to each other, but I think really do have, have a variety of different meanings. And so I think that calling video games... I, I, I wouldn't call video games a work of art, meaning that, you know, they're all masterpieces and they're all incredible. Um, there are a lot of really great games. There are a lot of really rubbish games. Um, but I would call video games an art form in that they all come out as a result of human expression from an artist. So unless you've got any video games that are made by machines, which I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> Hopefully. No. Yeah, no, I, well, so the, um, the example of a game that we've both played that mm -hmm. takes on some of these heavy theological, philosophical, metaphysical, aesthetic kind of issues, right? Um, might be Final Fantasy VII, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is that one fresh in your mind? It's always fresh in my mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, when did you last replay it? Um, so not in its entirety, but I played it the end of last year on yeah. the Switch. Nice. I played it a little bit with my wife and uh, we just dropped off. We kind of lost track, which, which happens. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a long one. Um, yeah. I replayed it with a friend of mine to, to basically talk through it, you know, mm -hmm. and um, in our long winded way, um, maybe a year or two ago now. Yeah. And so it's, it's still, um, it still haunts like everyone who's played that game. I, I feel like what for good or for ill um, they, they're marked by it and it's, it, it occupies a strange kind of threshold in the series and in, you know, the technology, um, you know, famously it was going to be on Nintendo, but Nintendo was going to do cartridges. So they couldn't uh, fit the game on, you know, they'd have like 10 cartridges or something. And so they, they shipped it over to the um, nefarious PlayStation. Right. And um, mm -hmm. so you have the console wars, you know, going strong at that point. And, uh, but anyway, so they, you know, the technology really strongly, um, you know, impacts how people feel about the game from the get-go, and and the graphics are just on another level from anything that's really been seen before at that time. Um, those those kind of cinematic qualities of you know seeing Midgar for the first time and seeing uh, the characters Eris and Cloud and all of them you know in in their full um, uh, you know CGI glory, um, and and so it's interesting I think that the game also with all of that going on, also tries to tackle like the deepest issues. You know, you're 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 saving the world like you do in any game, of course. But but somehow it's different because you've got a character that's called Genova. It's it's essentially a stand-in for the the Yahweh or Je Jehovah character of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, they're 
you know, summoning um, Meteor down to, to, okay, so we're spoiling the game now, sorry. But, um, <laughs> but so, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, um, of crazy stuff going on in that game. And um, as, a, as a kid playing it, I mean, that's maybe your first encounter with some of that stuff. If you, you know, if you've read the Bible or gone to Sunday school or whatever, you've probably, you know, heard it sort of echoes with some, some weight for you, but you might never have really thought about theological issues before um, or really like encountered mortality, right? Until Eris is famously killed off in, you know, the, the third of the way through the game or whatever. So mm -hmm. th there's a lot to that game um, that that gets at some of these issues of um, a human and divine um, relationships that, that I find to be the kinds of things that art is uniquely positioned to um, portray and question. And, and so I think, you know, again, a game with its flaws, but, but one that um, I, I don't know how I would have really encountered some of those ideas um, without it. Um, could you just like, when you think about that game and you think about it objectively and subjectively, what, what kinds of, what kinds of um, tensions do you, do you come up against there? And, and what kinds of things did you learn from, from that game over the years? Oh man. <laughs> Easy questions, huh? How huh, Wes? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all good. I love this. Um so yeah, Final Fantasy VII, I think is one of those games that um that some people are tired of hearing about. Um it's at that level of fame. So I think that's a layer that you have to kind of cut through to even discuss it. Um, and then I think there's an issue of realizing that um, critical consensus perhaps takes years to develop as an experience like Final Fantasy kind of settles with people. Um, what we've seen over time with Final Fantasy VII, though, is an expansion of its universe, which in my view has not necessarily detrimentally affected the overall portrayal of this universe, but has changed it at least. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a, a snarky phrase I like to use every once in a while, the animification of things. Sure. Um, and I think that, I think that it's something that we've seen, even in just the disparity between um, things like tone and presentation, uh, between Final Fantasy VII and, and Advent Children. I think that those are very different um, things, even though they happen to take place in the same universe. So there's that um, element. That for me would be, a, I, I think, probably a subjective way to approach the original Final Fantasy VII um, in light of my uh, awareness of the continued development of this universe. Um, and that certainly that's extraneous to any quality that exists in the original seven itself, because that's all there was. And they made just that. I don't think that they made seven with Advent children in mind, for instance. Uh, but I think within seven itself, there are, you know, there's, there's typos, there's glitches. There are things where the design doesn't function as intended. Um, there's a lot of quality of life things that could have been implemented. So I don't think that seven is a perfect game, but I don't think that it needs to necessarily be a perfect game. 
Um, this is perhaps something that I ought to say more frequently. It's perhaps something that um, that people assume when you mention things like objectivity or when you champion objectivity in games. I don't think anything is 100% uh, objective in art. Um, I don't know that it can be. It might be, but who knows? Um, but I'm interested in exploring, again, both avenues, objective and subjective. So Seven, I think, though, on a subjective level, is a game that means a ton to a lot of people simply because of the era that it came out in. Um, you know, people my age were playing Final Fantasy VII and were just, like, everybody in my school was playing Final Fantasy VII. Doesn't matter who you were, uh, you were playing it at home. And then we would get together and talk about it the next day. Um, I actually had Eris death spoiled contemporaneously uh, because somebody <laughs> in the schoolyard told me. Uh, but the degree to which spoilers matter to somebody, I think, is uh, is also subjective. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was still an impactful moment. So, um, but yeah, Seven is one of those games that I think is timeless in a lot of ways. Um, it continues to be fascinating. It is, as many Final Fantasy games are, immensely rich with historical and mythological reference. Yes, yes, I I certainly agree. I I have to confess, I've never played any of the spin-off or sequel or prequel or whatever games um mm -hmm. I, re I really just know the original final fantasy 7 and i don't know if i'll even play the uh the remake when it finally comes out um i might not be that interested in it honestly because mm -hmm. unless they do something you know that is as spectacular for today as as the game was when it first came out um I'd much, I probably would just rather, you know, read about it at this point, but, mm -hmm. but I think, so here's my, my pitch to you about Xenogears is that, you know, as, as astonishing as, as groundbreaking as Final Fantasy VII was at the time, I think that Xenogears um, is to Final Fantasy VII as, as Final Fantasy VII was to, I don't know, whatever other great game had come before it. Um, it's in terms of the, the density and the complexity of the kind of story that Xenogears is trying to tell, it it is an order of magnitude beyond, and and that goes for the 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 kind of in-your-face um, theological stuff that that's that's in that game as well. Um, it 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 was taking place. The the development of that game was taking place at the same time as Final Fantasy VII, and and I believe that some of the issues that the Xenogears developers had was a direct result of having to compete with the, the flagship, you know, series for attention and time and resources um, within Square at the time. So, so they, they have this kind of weird, um, like evil twin relationship with one another. Um, I'm not sure which one is the good twin and which one's the evil twin in this scenario, but, um, but they certainly are, are interesting counterparts. So for anyone out there who's, who's not played it, um, if you if you you know if you like Final Fantasy VII, you you probably will be interested in in checking out Xenogears, um, and I I wanted to turn then to some of the um, the questions that you you got from people um, just today, right? So these are some pretty active followers you've got. Yeah, there's a couple uh, there's a couple of folks that 
especially if I tag them. <laughs> you're like, hey, it was like poking somebody. Like, I need your feedback, like now. So, yeah. <laughs> but there are some really great people out there. Um, something that I actually I think works directly into um, what you were just talking about about um, Zeno Gears handling of these questions in a very in-your-face um, sort of way. Yeah. So my perspective on this has kind of changed over the course of my life. Um, and I see that in the two philosophies of Tolkien and, and Lewis. Um, you know, famously, re- contemporary writers knew each other. But Lewis apparently believed, um, and I don't have a source for this off the top of my head, so I apologize. Uh, you're so well-read, actually, that you might actually know where these these no, statements come from. I'm so glad that you brought Lewis and Tolkien. I've been meaning to get around to them, so thank you. Oh, yeah. Hey, you're welcome. Look at that. Uh, but uh, Lewis' perspective was sort of that uh, fiction can and should portray uh, theological ideas in, um, in a way that's, uh, you know, through analogy or through metaphor. And of course, Lewis is perhaps most famous for his Chronicles of Narnia in which uh, religious themes are unmissable. Uh, There's no way that you could read Narnia without, um, you know, picking up on those things. I think he actually in Last Battle, he even like just sits the reader down and explains like, oh, this is this, like Aslan is Christ just by a different name. So like he was very much uh, in tune with using these ideas as, um, again, perhaps we could say in your face metaphors. Um, with Tolkien, apparently, and this is something they disagreed on, uh, Tolkien believed that there were, that those things should be much more subtle, um, that they should be sort of more background. Um, and I've had various friends that believe various things. I've had people say to me that you should, um, you 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 shouldn't include God in in your fiction. And then I've set, heard others that you know sort of lean more toward the level of, you know, fiction should be. I think this was C.S. Lewis' term, smuggling um, ideas in. Nice. But I don't know exactly where I stand now. I don't. I I think that art as propaganda is the extreme take from from Lewis. Um, I don't think that he actually believed that, you know, Narnia was propaganda, but um, certainly there is, there are creative works out there that don't serve any other purpose other than smuggling um, ideas in, which I think is wrong. Uh, But then on the other extreme, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that these questions are taboo in fiction. Um, I think that it's, fine to talk about these things i mean there are people that can get offended in in discussing these things and i want to be aware of that but i don't think it's wrong to include those things in say your works of fiction so um there was a question here uh this is from ancient lit dude who said okay i don't know the xeno series too well but my general question would be why is religion usually treated so critically and unoriginally in video games. Why don't writers take the time to form nuanced questions of faith in games? Uh, In response to him, Amiibo MD said, fear of backlash, I suppose. So I think 
that's probably again that uh, hinting at the more Tolkien perspective of like, hey, you don't you don't mention these things in games because people are going to be offended at the portrayal of them. Uh, and that was more me at a younger age. Um, if I encountered questions like this in games and things like doubts and 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 things like that would kind of rile me up. But today I think that it's good to actually express those questions um, from whatever perspective you come at them in fiction. So plus I think too, I think that video games get enough backlash as it is without, you know, religious backlash. <laughs> religious backlash was kind of a thing of the, uh, you know, the early days of video games. I, I don't hear too much about that anymore. So I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting how in, in this question, I think um, in my experience, I found that, like I said, these games were some of my first, the first things that made me think about religious topics in a serious way, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I feel like there isn't that much harm in something being really obvious and in your face if the person that it's in the face of doesn't know about them at all, really. Mm -hmm. um, they need that, right? And, and I think, you know, Lewis has a point, you know, writing books like that for kids. Um, it's all well and good if you're a kid reading it and you don't know what's going on and it's like sort of new to you, then it's mm -hmm. interesting. But if you read it, you know, as a grown up, of course, knowing a lot of stuff about Christianity or whether you, you find it pretty offensively, you know, um, dogmatic or, or, or like too, too like trite maybe, huh? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I think, I think that those are two valid issues and, and a lot of it comes down to the audience. Um, like I say, for me, this was the start of a, a really a deepening of my thinking about religion. Um, and, and I think the, um, of all the games that, that tackle religious themes, Xenogears does it in, in, with the greatest complexity. As much as it is sort of in your face a lot of the time throughout the game, you're getting a lot of stuff that is not making a lot of sense because it's just sort of like drawing on some big words and, um, you know, these, these weighty topics from just taking wholesale out of myth and religion, psychology, whatever it does come together. Like it does. If you, if you give it a chance, if you stick with it um, and the way that it, it does it is through, um, through these characters who, who have a, um, a great amount of development. And um, I think, you know, not to, you know, demean other games or anything, but, you know, other games characters are, are a lot of times are sort of just caricatures. They're, they're just mm -hmm. sort of, stand-ins and that's that's all you need right for the yeah. game to work it's great it works nicely because you can um you can sort of project yourself onto them in lots of ways but but these are truly i think you know truly nuanced um characters and so the ways that the the material is handled through their story um comes out to be uh worth worth the time and effort and occasional headaches um and I, I can't be too much more specific than that. Unfortunately, I, I'm still working my way through the game for the first time in a long time. And so um, I would just say, like, if you're interested in, you know, reading deeply into religious stuff, there's few games that, that do as much with it as Xenogears. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if that pitch doesn't work on me, it's not going to work on anybody, but that pitch definitely works on me. So <laughs> it, it's moved higher up my someday list. I can tell you that. 
rock on. <laughs> but what did you, um, you know, what, what, this is something I've talked about before. I don't know if it's something that I've heard from you before, but the question about, uh, you know, is religion usually treated critically and unoriginally in video games? Well, it's, it's a hard one because the, the kinds of stories that religions and myths tell are not original, right? Um, mm -hmm. by, by our kind of modern standards, they're not meant to be. They're meant to be the essentials mm -hmm. of the story, right? That, that are sort of distilled down. And, and so I think I know what the, the question is, is really asking. It's like, why are they so um, unhelpful for thinking through like religious topics or something like that, right? Why, mm -hmm. why don't they really shed light on um, deeper truths or something in the way that uh, a great novel or a great symphony or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. uh, would do. But, but I think, yeah, um, they're, they're often there just to support the gameplay and that's all they need to do. Um, yeah. Whereas in Xenogears, they are really integral to the character development, the kind of story they're interested in telling um, with its sweeping scope and all that. It, it, it needs to have, the death of God as an essential story uh, point. Right? Mm. Uh, that's not just like the final boss has to be like big and scary and uh, angelic in some way. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I know that Nintendo had lots of problems with representing religion at all for a long time. So, so yeah. Some issues there. Yeah. And that was actually brought up by, you know, probably have to cut a little bit of time out of there. Um, it was brought up by Black Mage Felix too. Do you think Nintendo was overly sensitive about religion in early NES releases, or was it a good idea at the time to keep it out? Um, I think there was a different time back then, but you know we saw things like uh, what is it like something as simple as the the Red Cross removed from the hospital buildings in in Earthbound? Yes, um, yes, it seems example. a little silly, <laughs> uh, like. Like pretty silly. Uh, how long has the Red Cross organization been around in in the West? Probably longer than Earthbound, I think. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So, I I don't know. Um, I think yeah, it depends on their perspective and you know what they thought um, American audiences were ready for. But I think times have totally changed from that. As far as Jordan's question about um, religion being treated critically or unoriginally. Um, that's a tendency that I have to think about um, portrayals of religion in video games. But I think that at large, that's a, a typical portrayal in modern storytelling. I think there's a lot of disillusionment, like real disillusionment with organized religion in particular. Um, and a lot of real sort of wrestling with tremendous questions like, you know, biogenesis and the origins of the universe and meaning of life and so on and so forth. And so I, I think that comes out in a lot of games, but I think there are other games too, that sort of just rely on the weight of those questions to carry the game, but that doesn't always play pay out or pay off, excuse me. Um, so I think that, Generally, we do actually see um, religion portrayed, maybe not negatively, but perhaps in an oversimplified um, sense. So uh, a couple of games that, ca that came to mind actually just now was uh, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night um, has a 
pretty negative um, portrayal of organized religion. Um, and this is all under the the very uh, fair admission that organized religion has been uh, pretty awful throughout history. So, you know, there's definitely terrible things that have been done in the name of various religions. Um, at the same time, I think that there's a lot of good things that have been done um, by either religious bodies or by people with religious ideas. Um, and so it depends on perhaps where you fall on the question of is religion a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think in JRPGs in particular, and this kind of hinges into another question here that we got from uh, a good man. Why is it, do you think that organized religion, particularly with a Judeo-Christian bent, is portrayed as ultimately evil in Japanese games? Wonder if it has to do with the opening of Japan in the mid 1800s by Westerners myself, but I digress. Um, that's a theory that I've kind of been working through. I haven't done much research on it, but I think that in Japanese games, it, there, it seems like there's a, a distrust of Western organized religion in a lot of ways. Um, and that's perhaps influenced the development of these ideas, even in Western games, because a lot of us grew up on Japanese games. Um, another Japanese game that comes to mind that has distrust for organized religion is Breath of Fire 2, um, which is one that I mention a lot when religion in games comes up. Is that one that you've played? No, I played one of the Breath of Fire games. I don't remember which one it was. A friend of mine lent it to me, and um, I didn't I didn't get that far in it, honestly. Okay. Um, so it's not it's not one I'm as familiar with. No, is it is it the big bad in the game though, or is it like a minor enemy that you so, move through? It kind of is a very typical, uh, functions in a very typical uh, way for JRPGs. So you discover that this organized religious body um, is actually worshiping demons and not God. Uh, and their goals are not humanitarian. Their goals are to, um, you know, bring the, the final boss uh, to the surface of the world and, and so on and so forth. There you go. So... But an interesting thing about Breath of Fire 2 is uh, you spend a lot of time in churches, actually, in Breath of Fire 2. But there's a character, and I wrote about this before. Um, there's a character named Ray, who is what you would think like a saint would be from, from this church, uh, the Church of St. Eva, I think it was. But anyway, um, he's one that's distinct and separate. Despite being a part of the, this organization, he's distinct and separate from its principles of worshiping demons. So um, the, he stands in opposition to the party, but at the same time, you kind of develop this empathy for the character, um, and he develops an understanding of your perspective as well. So um, I think that that's illustrative of the fact that uh, bodies and groups are one thing, but individuals are another thing. And I think that's really important in any discussion about religion. Oh, yeah. And, and I like the, the cultural consideration that the historical one, you know, the way that a, a culture thinks about itself is not necessarily the way that it's perceived by a different you know, it's neighbors or someone mm -hmm. far away. And, um, and that's really, you know, 
crucial, I, I, I think. And um, yeah, so I, I can't say for sure. I don't know enough about, you know, Japanese history and mm-hmm. what missionaries were doing there and, and what they thought of it. But but it does make sense to me that, mm-hmm. you know, um, when you like from within a, a worldview that accounts for spiritual powers, when you see people coming in and, and claiming to speak in the name of those powers and then, you know, doing a lot of hypocritical stuff, actually, then, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe maybe they are enthralled to those powers and those powers aren't as good as they think they are or something like that. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that there's tons of examples of that. It's a, it's a perceptive question. Um, and I, yeah. I and guess it, I just ultimately am saying, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's a, that's a fair, fair answer. Um, I was just going to say that growing up in Hawaii, um, there is a, uh, an interesting relationship between missionaries and Hawaiians um, that has played out in various different ways. Yeah. Um, there are heinous things that have been done in the name of religion, um, even in that Hawaiian context. And there are very good things that have been done. And typically that comes down again to the individuals. One of the um, most perceptive statements um, I've ever seen on on this idea that I've just expressed actually comes from Charles Dickens. Um, recently, right on. Well, obviously it was you know Christmas recently, and I uh, I just read a Christmas Carol. Um, it was a book that I was like I'm pretty sure I've read that at some point in my life, and then I was like, wait, have I ever sat down and read uh, a Christmas Carol? And um, it it dawned on me that I probably hadn't. So I sat down and read it and was just re-fell in love with Dickens. Um, one of my favorite writers, um, Tale of Two Cities, is one of my favorite books ever. Mm-hmm. Um, just, it, you know, it's, it's almost like the elegance of the English language has been lost for the sake of the efficiency of the modern era. <laughs> right. um, we can't talk like, I mean, imagine if everybody talked like Dickens. You couldn't use Twitter. <laughs> just oh, what no a way. shame yeah what a shame he said yeah there's a perhaps a kind of utility there but uh social media as we know it uh memes wouldn't exist imagine memes with like hundreds of words to express a single idea but any <laughs> anyhow uh in a christmas carol um there's you know the scene where uh scrooge is being haunted by the ghost of christmas present and they're going around the city and sort of seeing what's happening um, around this Christmas time. And Scrooge looks at um, the ghost and complains. Um, I'm sorry, you'll probably have to cut this bit of silence out. My, my apologies. I'm glad we didn't lose you entirely. No, no, no. I'm just looking for the 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 right place to start this statement to give it some context. Uh, so it says, Spirit, said Scrooge after a moment's thought, I wonder you of all things in the many worlds about us should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. I, cried the Spirit, Scrooge says you would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day, often the only day on which they can be said to dine at all, wouldn't you? I, cried the spirit, you seek to close those places on the seventh day, said Scrooge, and it comes to the same thing. 
I seek, exclaimed the spirit. Forgive me if I am wrong. It has been done in your name and at least in that of your family, said Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours, returned the spirit, who lay claim to know us and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us in all our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that and charge their doings on themselves and not us. And I was just like, and that's wonderful. <laughs> that's such a, it's such a, it's such a great observation because it demonstrates that thing that people could a, a, adopt any name superficially and do things under a, a banner, under a title. Uh, but whether they actually match the principles and the, the core ideas of that name is another thing entirely. And so I think that a lot of terrible things have been done in the name of Christ, who himself said, you know, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, hmm. uh, who told Peter to put his sword away, uh, that are completely contrary to what the principles of the New Testament actually are. Just to quickly follow on that, I agree. And I think a, a big part of that is is as simple as people not reading the books, right? Like if you if you yeah. get it all secondhand, as great as your you know version of um, um, A Christmas Carol was, it made you think you'd actually read the original. But you've got to read the original, man. It's so good. When you yeah, I bet it's good. <laughs> yeah. Or the Bible for that matter. Yeah. Well, and the Bible is one of those. I mean, the book's been around for all several thousand years, uh, quite a long time. And a lot of its ideas have entered popular culture. And I think once they enter that kind of quick transmission, sort of a meme level of transmission, um, there's a level of corruption that takes place through that transmission. And so, you know, you have things that, you know, people are like, yeah, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. Like, really, where does it actually say that? is it even a principle that's in there um you know so things like that i think that that there's value in reading a variety of source materials um and kind of figuring out what your own perspective on these things are yeah yeah i i i, I started reading the bible around the time i was playing xeno gears so i was like i've got to like actually read this book <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> well that's uh it's pretty great if uh if Xenogears convinced you to read a 2,000-year-old uh, <laughs> religious text, there's a, you know, there, that sort of was my experience with Breath of Fire 2. Um, cool. That it provoked me to, because I, I grew up with my family taking me to church, um, slowly developed into an atheist around when my parents were divorced, played Breath of Fire 2, and was horrified at the suggestion that never occurred to my mind that um they could actually be worshiping evil um even though you know the the church in breath of fire 2 is not christian uh it's obviously something that's based on westernized uh judeo-christian um sort of ideas but i think there are a lot of ideas that are presented in games some things that came to mind were like um xenoblade chronicles 2 sort of wrestles with theodicy um horizon zero dawn um sort of has themes of traditions and superstitions um biogenesis um journey is a game that to me is very much about 
this concept of venuminous um, Final Fantasy tactics, very much centered on manuscript evidence and the importance of of uh, evidence for claims being made about certain religious beliefs. Uh, Final Fantasy X has religion, you know, front and center, um, and I think sort of presents religion as like an an opiate of the masses. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that. 10 goes a long way to sort of redeem central ideas too. So yeah, I think that there's a lot to explore in games. I think that some games do it better than others in discussing religious ideas. Some of them again, seem like they're just using them for the sake of the weight. um, And some of them are doing them in in an actual interesting way. So yeah. Yeah, of all those games you just mentioned, I am only familiar with the Final Fantasies. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, hey, that's all right. There's a lot of games and nobody can play all of them. So <laughs> there's not much you can do. Well, like the Xenoblade Chronicles 2 went, uh, Theodicy, which is um, uh, sort of the concept of vindicating God um, in light of the existence of evil. Milton, the ways of God, to, to justify the ways of God to man. There you go. Paradise yeah. Lost. yeah. Oh man, and I was, I was, you just reminded me, I was reading Paradise Lost uh, in the middle of last year and I forgot about it. I think it got buried under another pile of books. So I'm going to have to dig it out and finish it. But uh, a big question in that game was uh, there's this figure called the architect that lives in, you know, this, uh, I think it was called Elysium, but it's very much like a Garden of Eden kind of a concept and returning there. Um, there's a lot of Milton, I think, in, in Xenoblade Chronicles 2. Um, and characters asking, you know, why are we made this way? Why have we been made this way? Why is life this way? Um, why do things have to happen this way? And so let's go and ask the architect. Um, now the game, spoilers, the, game, <laughs> the game kind of um, cheats you of an answer by just making the architect a, a fallible human, which is like, well, then it's not really a question at that point, right? It just moves it back a step, yeah. Right, right, helpful. right. So I was like, well, darn it. Because <laughs> this is such a fascinating question, at least to me. So I was a little disappointed by that answer, and that's a subject of disappointment that I had with that game. But, um, but it's interesting to see a question like that come up. And that, you know, I mean, that's been around since the Old Testament. Uh, Shall, what is it? Shall the axe say against uh, him who, who hews with it? Um, why are you using me thus or something like that? So question of like, why asking God, why have I been made this way? Um, super fascinating in Xenoblade Chronicles too, but ultimately they kind of, you know, pull the rug out from under you. Uh, yeah. All right. All right. How about some <laughs> of these other questions they've sent us here? What do we see? Someone says, uh, Ceramics. Oh, that's a nice name. I can't think of a single game that warrants a sequel or HD remaster remake more than Xenogears. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the fence about that kind of stuff. Like I said, I kind of just like the original games. I don't play a lot of new games, I have to say. I, I liked the, um, the uh, Link's Awakening remake. That was delightful. Uh-huh. But, uh, but generally, I, I don't really go for them. And so... You know, I'd be curious to, to see it. The way that I like to think about games is like, if you want to remaster, remake it, just like write a fanfic or, or do a, a long form podcast about it. <laughs> like, that's, how I, that's how I get my imaginative dose of Xenogears. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I I um I prefer a remaster over a remake uh, any day. Uh, I think a remaster is more um, authentic and accurate to the source material, if you like. Um, whereas a remake sort of is potentially going to take more liberties. And that's certainly what we're seeing with the Final Fantasy VII remake, which I Gosh, typically man. insist is going to be a very different game. Now, the good thing is the original will always exist. Uh, Amen. You know, even if, <laughs> even if Square decides to, I don't know, pull all digital copies of Seven off the market, um, you'll still be able to get it and play it and through various means. But I think that they're they're definitely pursuing a very different kind of game. Uh, that being said, for Xenogears, I would definitely be on fence uh, or on the fence. I would definitely be on board rather for an HD remaster. Um, and the point there being the just the accessibility of the software. Um, I like to collect, right now I'm kind of focusing on collecting PlayStation 1 games, but some PlayStation 1 games can get really pricey, mm. insanely mm -hmm. pricey. Mm -hmm. I sold a PS1 game for over $400, The Misadventures of Tron Bond, because to me, like no game is worth $400. <laughs> Like, I'm just flat out, like, is this going to sit on my shelf? I'll maybe play it once in 10 years. Or I can have $400. Like, I'll take the $400. Thank you very much. Um, so, Xeno Gears, I think, is probably probably well up there in, in terms of price and buying the hard copy. Now, I, I think you could probably find it digitally um, on PSN, maybe PS3 or PS4. I don't know. Probably PS3. Um, but to make it more accessible, uh, an HD remaster would be great so long as they preserve the original content. So yeah. that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, I want it warts and all. Like, yeah, I want to know what the game was. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting when they don't fix things in remasters. Um, and I want to say I played something like that last year where I was kind of like shocked that they didn't fix something. Um, gosh, I can't remember what it was. But at the same time, it's like leaving those things in there preserves the fact that this was a, a product that was created with flaws, and those flaws um, can be nostalgic to some people. Yeah. You know, what is, the, what is that typo um, in Midgar, the guy that uh, – there's a guy that's sick. You yeah. mentioned it in your column, right? Oh, the guy yeah, outside, this guy are sick. Yeah, this guy are sick. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> certainly has like a, almost like a memeific level of enjoyment to it. Oh, yeah. Um, and so maybe they won't change that in the Final Fantasy VII remake, and that'll be hilarious. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, now there's a question here that would be hugely spoilerific, which is um, my only question from the the War in Our Star, Wonder of Time, about Xenogears has always been, what the hell happened in the intro movie, and WTF does it have to do with the game? Fair question. Like I had the same question. You don't know anything about that for many, many hours of the game. And the way that the game lets you into some of those mysteries is very frustratingly, um, I don't know, slow. I don't know. And, and, and not that um, clear. So it takes a lot of work to figure out WTH happened and WTF doesn't have to do with anything. Um, but it, does it's 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 worth it it and the i don't know if the the mystery contributes in some way to like 
helping you get through some of the other stuff that's weird about the game. Um, for me anyway, the, the kind of pl player that I am, the kind of person I am, I want to know, like you, what happened. And so I'm willing to go through a lot of other stuff to, to figure that out. And, and it does come out piece by piece. And it's like very ominous and very, I thought very effective actually. Um, it's a little silly, yes, uh, and a little bit bizarre, but um, but it, it comes together. Yeah, it, it, it's it's worth it. Um, and I think games weren't afraid to take their time too with a bit of storytelling back then. Uh, I've played a couple more recent games that are humongous, a uh, hundred-hour games, where the story part will be like a twenty-hour game. Yeah. Uh, everything else is you know running around back and forth. Um, and systems and, and quests and so so on and so forth. The sort of the gamey aspect of those games. Gotcha. Um, so it, it's interesting that um, you know you go back to some of those older JRPGs, and sometimes I'll ask, like, what what side quests are in this game? You know, and sometimes there'll be none. It'll just be like all story, all linear story for the entire game. Yeah. Uh, and that story will take its time too. So Xenogears like is yeah very light on gameplay after a certain point, very heavy on linear exposition of story that you've been waiting hours to get. So <laughs> I hope you like it. Hmm. Well, I will have to let you know when I finally get around to playing it. So <laughs> I've been building up too much of a backlog. That's a problem. Um. The clouds and bushes have faces on them in Super Mario Brothers, the greatest game ever, Mario 3, I assume. Uh, what does it mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, there is a spirit that moves through all things, right? And um, that's one way of, of seeing it, uh, smiling at you. There you go. See, I read that as less a serious question than, than, uh, than a joking question. So I just said uh, anthropomorphize everything. <laughs> and there's a weird tendency. Um, we were watching a, a National Geographic uh, quasi-documentary series called Year Million that's just about future ideas. We're talking about AI and, and robots and making sure that the robots look like us so that we, we can relate to them. And there's a part of me that's like, no, no, just make it a voice box. I can relate to a voice box. Make it an animal. Just don't make it a human. Because the second that you can't tell if it's a human or a robot, you're at Blade Runner. And I don't necessarily <laughs> want to live in that universe. But I think that there is a very natural tendency somehow of human beings to anthropomorphize everything. We do it to our pets constantly. Um, we do it to inanimate objects will be driving by a building you're like ah, it looks like a face but your brain did that before you even said those words so i don't know uh, but yeah we put cloud faces on clouds rather and faces on hills in super mario yeah and crits mccrits had trouble getting into xenogears what do i think made it unique and interesting compared to its rpg peers and it sounds like maybe you did you did try playing it at one point and had trouble getting into it as well or stuff came up? Yeah, I so I, um, I think I played it on an emulator, and this must have been years and years ago. So it just didn't run well. Um, it was on my first desktop that I ever bought with my own money. Um, gosh, it must have been in 
2000 or 2002 or something like that. So it was a long time ago. And PS1 emulators just were not good, at least none that I found. So it barely ran that intro. Um, starting to play the game, everything was just off kilter. So I, I didn't get much further. I've never owned the game. Um, you know, my stance on emulation has changed um, a little bit over time. But I like to collect now. And so if I could get a hold of the game, uh, either digitally or, or physically, uh, it'd be something I'd be very interested to play. I, I think it is hmm, by whatever, whatever means you can play it. Uh, you want it at this point, right? So I will go and rob my local uh, retro <laughs> store and sell them. Uh, Wesley Sean said I could, yes. by any means necessary, play this game. It, yeah, and so yeah, I I also I mean, emulating that's a a tricky moral quandary right there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I I would I would send you my copy of this game so you can play it. How about that? Oh no no no! That's not. It's very very kind of you but i'm sure i can find it um you know on the playstation network it's probably on the ps3 uh, psn uh and i'll i'll get to it someday there's there's a lot of kind people like yourself who really want me to play certain games and they'll offer to send me a copy i'm like i just have too too many games to play that's my problem fundamentally i just have too many games to play and it's a great first world problem to have Mm. But um, man, it makes it's like trying to navigate the, the the infinite progression. You just you don't know where to start. There's no end. Yes. You can't go from day one to day two. It's all infinite. There's so yeah. I mean, you can you can try to play right like the canon of games or something like that, right? Like the mm. the the best games or something. But maybe it's better just to to go with a kind of um, one game leads you to another sort of thing and and be serendipitous about it and um let let the chips fall where they may kind of thing mm. um i don't know if i've i hope that you know in the course of this couple of hours we've answered that question though about what makes it interesting um it's there's also a lot of great all right so this is the last comment i want to read which is from kazena um which is a quote from the game want to hear some hot sounds i recorded um <laughs> yeah there's a lot of great podcasts out there there this is this is one that's used frequently uh, almost as a catchphrase by one of the podcasts that I listen to these days, which is um, retrograde amnesia is the name of it. And it's all, all about Xenogears. It's um, it's wonderful. So um, yes, the answer to that is yes. And um, there's also a, a few like real good YouTube sort of video analyses that are really nicely produced um, that do go into like, you know, more spoilers and, and laying out some stuff about the story that, um, help it make sense for you if you just want that up front, you know? Um, and so, yeah, there, there's like, there's endless depths to this game. Um, it's, it's something that's given me um, tremendous food for thought over the years and um, is, is really standing up to my scrutiny now that I'm coming back around to it. Um, I, I really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat about it with me when you've never even played it that's that's so wonderful um yeah <laughs> it's been a wonderful conversation oh uh, yeah i've i've really enjoyed this conversation and thank you so much for the invitation to your show um i yeah i've wanted to talk to you like this for a while and i'll have to definitely have you on magecast 
sometime. Cool. Um, maybe we'll talk about a game you've never played before. <laughs> it's only fair. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I, I, I think we did one or two episodes of Magecast on a game I've never played before. And it's wow. interesting. It's fun because you can still talk contextually. Uh, and sometimes those contextual conversations are just as important. You know, we've talked about a variety of other games that sort of fit in the same contexts. Um, and it's, it's good. It's great. As long as you enjoy the conversation, nobody's feelings were hurt, things were said, beliefs were expressed, yeah. art was defined. <laughs> I hope, yeah, I hope it um, gets some feedback and, and more questions and that the conversation goes on. That would be the best, the best outcome, I think. Yes, that's certainly what our civilization needs is more conversation, less echo chamber. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks again. Take care. All right, you too.